Welcome back to the Sporting Max Podcast. This episode is brought to you by The Missing Link. The Missing Link will help you or your business connect with the biggest stars in the world through events and experiences. Find them at tmlthemissinglink.com.au. Here is your host, Max Becker. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Sporting Max. But today we are with Australian basketball legend Chris Anstey. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. How are you going? Good, Max. Thanks for having me, mate. No worries. Now, can you tell me a bit about your childhood and what growing up was like for you? Yeah, well, it's a long time ago now. It, uh, it yeah. was normal. I mean, I, I grew up uh, in Footscray when I was really young and followed the Western Bulldogs and moved across to Keelor and you know, that was school for me it was Keelor, North Keelor and Sydney. So, you know, outside of being a lot taller than everyone else, it was very normal. I grew up playing tennis, mm-hmm. uh, played tennis all the way through until I was 17 years old and found basketball late, which, of course, turned out turned out to be what I did for my career. But, uh, you know, it's a very, very normal upbringing. In 1994, you joined the Melbourne Tigers alongside Gazy, Leonard Copeland and Mark Bradkey. What was this like coming into the Melbourne Tigers side and playing with those um, kinds of calibre of guys? Yeah, it probably didn't mean as much to me as everyone else because I didn't follow basketball. Um, yeah. You know, there were a lot of other junior basketball players who'd been in the sport a long time who thought it was a bigger deal than me. But what I did know, and probably especially with Mark Bradkey, was how good he was and how physical he was. And it was a really easy point of reference for me to understand how good I needed to become. So, uh, yeah, that, that was the thing for me with the Melbourne Tigers. And, you know, I only started, I was there with the juniors before I got to the NBL. I played juniors with them for three years. And a coach named Des Middleton was, and, and, and Al Westover, who ended up coaching yep. the NBL, were, were great for me and gave me all kinds of time. But I suppose when I got to the NBL level and I'd learned a little bit more about the sport, I realised that that wasn't the ideal situation for me to develop and, Happened to we happened to be training in the same stadium uh, as the Southeast Melbourne Magic, who were coached by Brian Gorgian, and mm-hmm. just getting an understanding of what they did. Uh, you know, I just knew I needed to be across there, and was fortunate that they were uh, keen to have me on board as well. So I moved across pretty quickly. Now we've recently had your former teammate um, from the Magic, Andrew Parkinson, on the podcast. Good old what's, it like, <laughs> what's it like to train and play with a guy like Parky? You don't get many shots up. Um, he <laughs> uh, no, it was great. And the thing was, Parky was captain of the red team. And so our starting five trained in black mm-hmm. and our bench five uh, trained in red. And Parky was a sort of the captain of the red team. And we always used to take it upon ourselves as a real challenge to can always beat the starters at practice. So we used yeah. to have some really, really intense training sessions, honestly more intense than what the games were, we used to beat mm-hmm. each other up. And, you know, it was myself, Parky, Frank Drimmick, Jason Smith, uh, and Rupert Sapwell, I think the first year I got there, but there'd always be one or two players jumping in and out. But, uh, yeah, the starting group, of course, full of Olympics, Sam McKinnon, Tony Ronaldson, John Dorge, whichever imports we had in the group. Uh, but we used to love beating them up. And it, there was this real camaraderie and, that's probably why, you know, Parky and I are still friends today. Yeah. And a lot of those guys on the team, we still catch up and, you know, spoke to Sam McKinnon just earlier on today. And, you know, probably the best group of, you know, probably the tightest team that I've ever been a part of. 
1996, you won the NBL's Most Improved Player, uh, as well as winning the NBL Championship. What did all this mean to you? It meant I wasn't very good in 1995. <laughs> and, uh, it wasn't that hard to win. It's a bit of a backhanded compliment winning a Most Improved Player Award because they're telling yeah. you you're pretty average. But look, the championship was great. Um, we beat the Melbourne Tigers, uh, the, the, the team that I'd come from. Uh, you know, my role wasn't a, a huge role. in It was big, but, yeah. you know, towards the end of my career, I won a couple where my role was a lot bigger, but um, incredible to beat the Tigers in front of 15,000 people. Um, incredible to, you know, we, we, we always thought we had a less talented but harder working team than the Tigers. Mm -hmm. So to almost justify that was, was really special. 1997, you competed uh, in the Australian Emus 22 and under team where you played in Melbourne and won gold and you actually won the tournament MVP. Can you tell me a bit about what it was like to be on, I guess, the world stage as a young basketballer in your 20s? Uh, it was interesting. It was... I hadn't really played international before because I played... I'd only come to the game so late and I joined yeah. a team that had been together for the under-19 Worlds a couple of years before, you know, Sam McKinnon, Simon Dwight, Frank Drew, these guys had been around and um, three of us, so the, the three bigs actually, myself, Ben Melmoth and Ben Pepper joined the team, so I guess we gave them some size. But, um, yeah, look, it was interesting because before the World Championship started, I'd already been drafted. And so I came in knowing that I was going to finish the NBL season, that I was going to go to the NBA and, so at that level, there was probably less pressure, which maybe is why I was able to perform as well as I did. Don't get me wrong, I probably don't think I deserved to win MVP that tournament. Yeah. I think Sam McKinnon was was incredible. Um, there were some names who, you know, Manu Ginobili was incredible for, for Argentina and he was still developing then. But um, again, the, the fact we played it in Melbourne and we did it in front of our family and friends, I think was probably the, the most memorable part of all of that. You were taken to the 18th pick uh, in the 97 NBA draft by the Trailblazers, but your draft rights were uh, traded to Dallas. What was it like watching that all unfold? I did it from in Melbourne at a, at a TV studio with my Magic teammates. So uh, all I knew going into draft day was that I was going to get drafted mm -hmm. uh, because I'd had a guarantee from the Chicago Bulls that if I was still there with the last pick in the first round, that's where I'd go. Yeah. And it surprised me that I went that high. There was a little part of me that really wanted to go to the Bulls, of course. You know, Michael yeah. Jordan, Freddie Pippen, Luke Longley, these guys. Um, so it was, it was unknown. It was scary. I was nervous and all these things. But at the same time, I'd just come through a period of probably four months where people were watching every time I had a basketball in my hands. And I, I didn't really enjoy that. Um, always being evaluated so... Yeah, the, the, the couple of months after that were probably some of the best basketball I'd ever played in my life because I relaxed and I, I didn't feel like I was under any pressure to perform and I knew where I was going. So, uh, look, it was all part of growing up. Um, you'll get there one day. Um, no, <laughs> it was part of growing up, it was part of maturing and just learning about everything that, you know, it, it helped me later on in my career. In your rookie season, you scored a career-high 26 points against the Celtics. Can you tell me about this game and how it played out? You, you, I remember it well. It was uh, it was something I was really proud of. You know, there are a lot of people who didn't think I belonged in the NBA, and at times myself included. 
Um, so, and, and I'd been benched, I'd been on injury reserve, and I was, I was a long way behind. Um, and towards the end of my rookie season, it actually happened. We played the Boston Celtics on St. Patrick's Day, which is a, you know, to play the Celtics on St. Patrick's Day for all of the Irish heritage people. And it actually turned out to be my mum, or it is my mum's birthday as well, and she was in the crowd. So it was all of these really nice things came together on this day. And I'd been working on my jump shot in my perimeter game a lot. Uh, yeah. And it all came together in this game. So I went 11 of 15. I remember every shot I took. Yeah. Um, the, the, probably again, it, it was really pleasing to have them again. Yeah, Antoine Jamison was on that team and he was doing really well. The Celtics were coached by Rick Patino and they used to run and trap a lot. So I found myself open quite a bit. But to have that sort of game, and yeah, the, the thing is, when you do something for the first time, it, it, there's something special about it. And, you know, nobody had ever been drafted to the NBA from the NBL before. And I found a way to do that. And at the time, on that day, 26 points was the highest score in the NBA that an Australian had ever had. Yeah. Uh, and it was actually a record, a very, very little-known record that stood for a long time, but I kept reminding people. Um, <laughs> so, no, I was very proud of that. And um, Yeah, it was, it was again, it's, there's something about sharing a day like that with your family. My family was there because back then social media didn't exist. Um, yeah. We had Australians had a lot. Far, far greater limited well they had more limited access to the NBA and you know it's, it's funny that not a, not a bunch of people believed me when I told them actually <laughs> so you played one more year with the Mavericks before being traded to the Bulls in September of 1999 how did you feel when you saw this um you always feel a little bit weird when you get traded because it's someone not wanting you you, you look at it that way more so than the other team wanting you but uh, turned out, you know, I went to the club that wanted me originally um, and was going to draft me on draft day. But, yeah, by the time I went, I'd already had a season after I say anyone with any ability left. But Jordan yeah. left, Pippen left, Longley left, Kukoc was still there. And some of those role players were still there from the championship team of the, you know, the, the 1997 championship team and the three-peat. Um, so it was a weird year. It was – we were really bad um, – we, we lost a lot of basketball games. We were in transition and, you know, there's still a part of it where you put on a Chicago Bulls uniform, you walk into their practice facility every day and the championship trophies and banners yeah. are there for everyone to see. So it was very special to wear that uniform for a season, but in a very different context to what it would have been two years earlier. What's that like to come in um, day in, day out with guys like BJ Armstrong, Alton Brand, um, and you mentioned before Tony Kukoc? Yeah, great, because they'd seen a lot of things and, and they'd been a part of success. And, you know, even before that, you know, I'd been on a team with, with Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki and Michael Finley. So I was getting accustomed to being around people who had achieved success. And that tends to rub off on, on anyone. And it was something that I always enjoyed doing is surrounding myself with successful people. And they were good people. You know, BJ Armstrong, Tony Kukoc, that you, you mentioned were, were really good people. Um, and I learned a lot from them. And would have been great to have had more time with them, but I was only there for a year and wasn't able to secure another contract um, to get back to the NBA. I got close a couple of times, but, you know, ended up after the Sydney Olympic Games, which was the next year. Um, I wasn't prepared to spend my off-season with the Bulls without a guaranteed contract because it would have meant missing the Olympics. So I chose to come home and play in the Sydney Olympics um, and I didn't get another NBA contract. What's something that you took away from your NBA experience? 
uh, that it's a bloody good league. It's uh, it's the best in the world. Um, not necessarily the best players, but you know, I've been coaching for a long time now. It's you know, so many coaches teach skill exclusively, but it's size, strength, and speed. And the NBA is the most athletic. It's the strongest league in the world. Um, you can have all the skill in the world, but if you get beat up, you can't compete in it. So, yeah. you know, as young athletes, we need to invest time in our bodies. We need to get faster. We need to get stronger. We don't just need to get better. It's, it's a bit more even than that. You mentioned before the 2000 Olympics are at Sydney. What did it mean to you to come back to Australia and put on the green and gold and represent your home country? Uh, it's an interesting one. It was a once in a lifetime. You know, you fought, I was fortunate to play in an Olympic Games and my first one was Sydney. Um, mm-hmm. It's always interesting. People talk about representing your country. I, I still think, and you've you probably heard it already, um, I was representing my family, my friends, my teammates, mm-hmm. uh, people that I'd shared my journey with before I was representing the 20 odd million Australians I'd never met mm-hmm. um, because it meant something to them. And I knew that they'd be watching every second of every game. And I wanted to make sure I represented them well um, and yeah. represented the players who missed the team well, because there's a lot of disappointment that goes into an Olympic games or any international tournament, because there are, teammates and squad members who miss out on that last team and don't get the experience. So I think there's a responsibility uh, to be at your best. So it was incredibly exciting when we got there. Um, The two weeks was incredible living in the village, competing against the best players in the world in front of our home fans, but Mm -hmm. it also became one of the most disappointing uh, sporting events of my life because we made the final four and we were the only team not to win a medal. Um, yeah. We got, we, you know, we got knocked out in straight sets, and we wanted to be that first senior men's team to win win a medal at an Olympics. We didn't do it, and we're still trying to do it today. You returned to the NBL with Brian Gorgian uh, and the Victoria Titans. What was this like to have the opportunity uh, to play under a great coach like Brian Gorgian? He was the only coach I was going to play for. Um, mm-hmm. I needed to get better. Um, he was my coach of the Magic. Um, you know, I had better offers from other teams. I, I, I played for nearly nothing. The NBL tried to not let me play for nearly nothing because they didn't mm-hmm. think it was fair for other teams. But that's the sort of coach Gorge is. And I felt like I'd made enough money over the last three years that I didn't need to take money from my teammates. Um, you know, the, the Titans, the two years of the Titans were two of the more interesting ones. I ended up folding. Um, I got injured in the semifinals and we, we lost in the semifinals both years. So it was, it was an interesting two years. There wasn't much history to the, or there wasn't any history to the club. Um, there turned out to be no future for the club. And it's the team that very few people in Victorian basketball talk about today. So mm-hmm. we wore these horrible teal uniforms and uh, you know, for me, it was almost a bridging two years. I love being around Gorge. I love being around the guys and being back in Melbourne, but, yeah, when that when the club folded, it, it was sad, but you know there wasn't a lot of history that went with it. In two thousand three, you led Russian club Ural Great Perm uh, to runners up in the championship. Tell me about how it feels when you have ups and downs and come so close to winning a championship but just fall short. Well, we we probably came a lot closer than most people expected. We weren't expected to make the championship series. It was a really really tough 
first year in Russia, you know, minus 45 degrees, nobody spoke English. Mm -hmm. uh, outside the other import that was on my team, um, Eddie Shannon, who ended up playing in the NBL for a season with Adelaide. But um, I, I was very proud of that year. It was as good as basketball as I've played in my life. Um, again, I did it in front of nobody that knew because, again, middle of Russia, no, nobody from Australia was watching. And that, that was probably the thing I was proudest of was my ability to perform when there were reasons not to and uh, when nobody really shared in what I was doing. And uh, you know, I found a way to, I, I suppose, achieve what I considered success without all of those people around me supporting me. And um, yeah, I learned a lot. I ended up, I, I thought when I got to Russia, I'd made a big mistake. Um, and I never saw myself going back. We ended up, ended up going back for three years or two more years and playing yeah. three years in Russia before I ended up coming home. And uh, yeah, I grew up a lot. My basketball improved a lot. Um, I got a lot tougher. And uh, as much as anything, I think I learned some stories and learned some lessons that I was able to share with my teammates back when I came back to play with the Melbourne Tigers and finish my career. And, you know, probably made myself a, a bit more of a mature human being than what I was when I got on a plane to go across. How did coming back to the Melbourne Tigers all come about? Uh, Al Westover called me the year before. Uh, he was the assistant coach and he'd been my under-20s coach of the Tigers. And he'd been told he was going to be the head coach of the Tigers a year before he actually was. And Lindsay Gaze decided to stay one more year and it turned out I had another offer to go back to Russia. So I stayed, but I said, Al, the minute you get it, call me. Mm -hmm. um, and he got that head coaching job the next year. Um, my young, I had a, a son and a daughter by this stage and my daughter was ready to, uh, well, she was, she was kindergarten age and um, mm -hmm. I wanted her to be kindergarten in Melbourne. So it was the easiest negotiation in the world. It probably took a day. Um, so I came back to the Melbourne Tigers, you know, the year that Andrew Gaze, Leonard Copeland, Mark Bradkey and Lindsay Gaze left. And yeah. everyone thought the club was rebuilding. Um, you know, we're going to go through a rebuilding year. But, you know, we, we all thought differently internally. We won the championship. Um, and, you know, the, the four years or the first four years I was back, we're really, really proud that, you know, we were able to do in four years what the club had done in the history of the club by winning two championships and making two other championship series. And, um, you know, that, that group of players we had um, got a lot better those four years. Everyone had added responsibility. Mm -hmm. Al empowered them to be better players. And, uh, you know, we feel that we're one of the, the better clubs in NBL history for a short period of time. Now, did you notice a difference in... Um maybe your emotions between your first and then your second and your third championships with the Tigers? Yeah, probably more responsibility for the, the second and third because I was co-captain with Darren McDonald. Yeah. Um, you know, as I mentioned, I'd, I'd learned a lot from my time in the NBA and in Russia and, you know, had a leadership role within the group as well as making sure that I was performing as well as I could every game and that I was consistent. Mm -hmm. So, um, without getting too far into leadership, there's a responsibility to make sure that you're acting in a way that people want to follow, but at the same time, allowing them to be as good as they, as good as they can be. But um, again, a lot of it came down to Al Westover allowing us to make our own mistakes, be who we are, and, and allowing us to, I suppose, express ourselves a little bit more and... Um, I think everybody played better than what they had the year before, myself included. But 
you know, for me coming back to the club that I'd left right at the start of my career, I didn't know how I'd be accepted. And I'll never forget the very first possession of my, my time with the Melbourne Tigers. I caught the ball in the wing. We're running a set that everybody in the league knew. I just yep. put it on the floor, took one dribble and dunked it on the baseline and <laughs> ended up looking right at the bench. And, you know, we beat Illawarra by 40 that very first night. And I think whatever people had thought about me for leaving was sort of forgiven straight away when they got a feel that, hang on, this this group's going to be okay. It's not going to be a long rebuilding process. I, I think we're okay. And, you know, it, it was a fantastic period of time. In 2006 and 2008, you won the league MVP. What was winning an MVP um, in Melbourne and the NBL like for you? Uh, not as important as winning the grand final MVP. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it sort of shows that you're able to be consistent over the course of the year. But one of the things I always wanted to do was put any team that I was on in a position to challenge for championship. I mean, mm -hmm. I don't believe in setting goals to win championships because it leads to failure more often than not. But I think you can put yourself into a position to take a swing at it. And we did that every year. And so winning the MVP, I suppose showed a level of consistency but for me the the grand final MVPs that I was able to win in the years that we won the championships meant more because I didn't go away and and mm -hmm. didn't succumb to pressure I was able to perform when it really mattered as were my teammates and I think Dave Thomas probably should have won the second one yeah. um, that I won but um, the, the, the championships are the thing that the grant that the MVPs and uh, they're wonderful and they they sound great and I'll have a bit of fun with them now being retired for a long time but at the time nobody could have cared who won that MVP um we yeah. won the championship uh, two out of four years and uh yeah that was the thing uh, in 2008 you were claimed the def best defensive player uh, in the NBL was defense something that um you would work on regularly yeah, always it's form the backbone of what we did and, and that was a Brian Gorgian thing and it's funny what you remember Lindsay Gaze when he did a media conference when I was playing that one year with him um, the only thing he ever said about me publicly was that oh, my defence was terrible <laughs> so there, there was always a part of me that wanted to become a better defender wanted to help you know split line defence of the big and you know, I always tried to compare myself to guards, even though I was tall, and I, I challenged myself to be a little bit better and faster than what other bigs were. And so, yeah, that was a really good one for me. And, you know, two that I'm pretty proud of, that one and, you know, leading the league and rebounding one year because I was never the most physical player. And there are others who just spent all of their time learning to rebound. But, you know, I led the league one year in rebounding as well. And that was another small one that I had to tick off and I was able to do that But um, yeah, that defensive player of the year was special because I think oftentimes players on a team who are given the responsibility or the role to score a lot of points tend to take possessions off at the other end. And I wanted to make sure that wasn't me. Again, in 2008, uh, you played for the Boomers your second time uh, at the Olympics, but in Beijing. Tell me about the whole experience of going overseas to another country to represent uh, your hometown and seeing other parts in the, of the world. Basketball, but then I, I was able to, and that was that, that's an incredible way to see it. Um, turning up to Beijing, a lot more mature than what I was in Sydney. I had you know, I'd, I'd been at the Olympic Games, I, I wasn't going to get distracted by the Olympic Games, and again, we came in with an expectation of challenging for the medal, and we weren't able to do that. Um, 
but again, you, you could put an Olympic village anywhere in the world. It's going to be very similar because all you really experience is the village, the bus drives to the stadium and that. You, you don't really get to see more because basketball goes for the entire two weeks of an Olympic tournament or of an Olympic event. So we don't see much, but, you know, in the lead up, we played in Shanghai and played against, you know, Team USA in Shanghai and that mm -hmm. was pretty special. We, we got close to them. Uh, you know, we played in Hong Kong in lead up tournaments and look, basketball is an incredible way to see the world you don't probably see as much as you think because you're in yeah. hotels for most of the time and in stadiums but again to go to two olympic games and, and to do that and you know especially towards the end of my career again it was i've said it a lot but it was a pretty special moment so you retired at the end of the 2009-2010 nbl season why did you retire and did you have an outlook on life after basketball yeah, I never wanted to be one of those players who played three years after they should have retired and everyone was wondering why they're still battling and trying to get through a, get through a season. So I had a pretty major hip surgery in that last season and, and missed the first half of the season of 2009 and 10. Mm -hmm. um, you know, walk, and it turned out I had pretty chronic arthritis in, in my hips. Um, I was able to get back um, and play at the end of the season, but I knew that I wasn't going to be able to put in the volume of work required for me to perform how I wanted to perform. So again, I didn't want to be a guy, especially in the absence of having a really good young player that I could play 10 minutes a game and really help develop. We didn't have that at the club. You know, if we had, a, I probably would have been, probably could have been convinced to play another year, but um, yeah. th that didn't exist at the club. And so I thought it was best to walk away. And it turned out that by this stage, Sam McKinnon had, had come and played for the Tigers and we retired on the same day. So, you know, we started our NBL careers in the same year. We spent a lot of our time playing together at the Magic and on junior Australian teams and at Olympic Games. And to retire on the same day as him was, uh, was another pretty memorable night. Now, you've coached multiple successful basketball teams, uh, including Caulfield Grammar, the Campbell Dragons. And in 2012, you were named as the Melbourne Tigers head coach. How did the opportunity for this position all come about? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, the, the Caulfield Grammar one came because Bruce Palmer coached before me and he recommended me to the school who hired me. Mm -hmm. um, I coached at Camberwell. My brother was there. I was, I was able to bring him along. And I, because I'd been overseas for so many years, I wanted to spend time around my family and turned out to be a good reason to be able to do so. And I guess when new owners took over the Melbourne Tigers, they had been around me as a player and must have seen something that they thought translated into a good leader. And they gave me the opportunity. It only lasted for two years. So I coached the Tigers for two seasons. And, you know, we were a club when I took over that hadn't made the, the playoffs in five seasons. We missed by a free throw on that one, on the, you know, during our first season. And the second season, we made the semifinals and took Adelaide to three games. But unfortunately, I got fired after a game into the Melbourne United, in the Melbourne United's history that, wasn't, I wasn't exactly what they were looking for and they needed to make a move and uh, sort of found my niche and have really enjoyed coaching well, junior boys and girls sort of between 16 and 20 years old at, mm -hmm. at state and national level and, um, you know, representative level over the last four or five years on the women's side of the game as well. So, you know, I've got a daughter who plays, which got me into that. And, you know, I'm emotionally invested in growing women's basketball here in Australia also. So I've been a part of that now for five years and uh, really enjoy coaching, really enjoy 
opening young athletes' eyes to what they're truly capable of and trying to remove distractions and hurdles um, as things that they feel like they can't overcome. And I had some great people around me when I played and I'm very fortunate for that. And some of the lessons they taught me that I took away, I really enjoy sharing with athletes and students, whoever I'm in front of, to be honest, that uh, probably the reason I got into coaching in the first place. Now, I saw you appear on a tape uh, on Michael Jordan's The Last Dance. It was you and Dennis Rodman uh, face-to-face in a match, and I saw on your Instagram you wrote Dancing with Dennis. So what was that like for you to be watching The Last Dance and see yourself come up on the screen? I didn't accept. Well, you know, I knew it was going to happen that day because I'd had about 100 text messages saying you made The Last Dance. I thought, (laughs) geez, for someone who's had a – I was pretty proud of my 17 or 18-year basketball career, but it turned out yep. I was going to be more well-known for a three-second clip on a documentary. <laughs> um, but no, watching The Last Dance was fascinating because not, the, the parts had centred around the Bulls. You know, After it was done, I walked those hallways and drove those streets and practised at their practice facility and played with some of the guys who featured in it. So there was a sense of nostalgia um there was this you know probably a a sense of how great it really was because i've seen it and they they did a good job of putting it together and um no that chicago bulls team was fascinating and even in speaking to to different players from that group they all see it very differently and Mm -hmm. you know i know michael jordan sees it differently to tony kukoc and they both see it very differently to luke longley so you know it was it was a fun one to watch and you know you know what it was like we're all in lockdown we needed something yeah. and uh it was great they were able to you know the basketball community got speaking again uh in the absence of games to watch the last dance became the thing that we all sat down and watched for i think it was six weeks was it so yeah. no, i really enjoyed it who's the best player you think you've played on um over your career played on well i mean played against michael jordan mm-hmm. you know individually probably Shaquille O'Neal was the most dominant Um, Hakeem Olajuwon had the best footwork and Timmy Duncan these sort of guys Um, if you ask me who the best I played with you know I played with Steve Nash and Dirk Nowitzki who both struggled when I was with them but found ways through how hard they worked to really really improve and you know maybe the most underrated player I ever played with was a guy named Michael Finley who who played at Mm -hmm. the Mavs and carried that franchise for a number of years and be, again, because the, the social media didn't exist back then, doesn't get nearly probably the credit he deserves for how great he was. Now, the NBL says, do you go for the Phoenix or United? Well, I don't know. Well, I don't go for United because they fired me. Um, <laughs> uh, look, Phoenix, and the thing is, I, I support people now. I, I mean, I, I support the Hawks as much as anyone because Brian mm-hmm. Gorgian's back. Um, Simon Mitchell, who coaches uh, the Phoenix, is a good mate of mine. And I've got players that I've worked with across the league that I enjoy keeping an eye on. So I guess I like watching the league as a whole. Um, And I say that, you know, jokingly, you know, Chris Golding was a player that was at the Tigers and United, as was Dave Barlow. I I played and coached Dave. So I still enjoy seeing players I had some small interaction with still doing well. Um, Fascinated to see how the league turns out. I I think it's going to be... I think it will be the Hawks and probably United this year. It's going to be interesting. Um, be fascinated to see if Ryan Brockoff comes back to the league. I've got a sneaky suspicion he'll be in the NBL and yep. that could change things altogether if he goes to a, a contender. But uh, I don't have a team. 
what's it like for you to sit back and watch uh, Gorge come back into the league and make a massive difference and impact on the Illawarra Hawks? I called Sam Froling, who was a member of our under-19 Australian team that I was assistant coach for, and said, you better not even think about going anywhere. You're about to get better. <laughs> and that was it. It was just knowing what those players and the and the staff at Illawarra were about to experience. They, they're just going to get better. They, I don't think even they, – they knew that they'd heard it, but, you know, the day-to-day with Gorge and, and with how hard you work and how tight you become is a different thing to anything I've, I've ever been a part of. So it's been – I probably didn't expect to see it as noticeable so so early, but, you know, I think everyone's already remembering how great a coach Gorge is. And because he hasn't been here for 10 years, people thought he'd forget about the league, but what they didn't probably come to consider was that he's become 10 years better than what yeah. he was when he left, and that's something scary. Uh, so what's it like for you to watch um, NBA prospect and young gun Josh Giddy um, go to work this uh, season? Yeah, it makes me feel old because I played with his dad and I coached him at the <laughs> 19th level, but it's exciting. Um, I remember my journey uh, that I went through. I remember my family and friends going through it, so I'm excited. Um, he'll definitely be in the NBA next year, and yeah, the advice I would give Josh or any of the kids is that when you get there, that's just one step, but that's where the real work begins. So he's going to have a great opportunity. Um, he'll be in the NBA. I'm happy for him. I'm happy for Walzer, his dad. I'm happy for Kimmy's mum because I've known them over the years as well. And for the Australian basketball public, uh, enjoy watching Josh while you can because outside of playing for the for the Boomers, we're not going to see him for a long, long time. Oh, what's it like for – what's your perspective, sorry, on the new team, the Tassie Jack Jumpers? I'm a little bit sketchy on the name. <laughs> but, hey, look – it's great to have basketball in Tassie. I think it'll be the number one sport in the state in a few years' time. I don't think the AFL will get down there. Um, really good hire with Scott Roth as their first head coach. He was actually one of my assistant coaches when I was with the Dallas Mavericks back when I got drafted. So I knew him a little bit, and he's been with the Perth Wildcats. So not only has he got that international experience, he's got NBL experience under his belt as well. Um, really excited to see who they who they sign. There's a, a pretty big rumour going around that Matthew Delavadova might end up down there. Yeah. But I tend to think they'll try to get one or two locally born star mm-hmm. players. I'll get some great imports and my hope is that they're competitive straight away so that the Tasmanian public jumps on board and they're a sustainable basketball club. What are you doing these days? That's a very, very good question, Max. <laughs> now, I, I do a lot of coaching. I do a lot of corporate consulting. Uh, mm-hmm. I wrote a book over lockdown and I'm in events. So I, I I tell people I'm a professional hat juggler, but in all likelihood, <laughs> but, I, but I've been told that there's a, there's a term for what I do and it's called a portfolio career, which I'll, which I'll go with. What would be your best advice uh, to anyone trying to have an amazing basketball and sort of coaching career like yourself? You are who you are when nobody's watching and you never know who's watching. So do the work when there's nobody around, do the work you don't have to do and, one day you might just be seen doing more than what you need to. Uh, too many young players out there are lazy and don't work hard enough uh, and get seen being lazy when they don't know they got seen. Um, all of my opportunities in basketball and even post-basketball have come because I've, I've tried to be the best I can be as often as I can be. Um, I try not to get caught out being less than my best. So that would be my advice.
Thanks, Chris, for putting aside some of your time. It's a privilege um, for you to do that and come on and have a chat today. Um, it's been amazing having you. I was stoked to get you on. Anytime, Max. Hey, good luck with your podcast and we'll talk again another time. All right. Thanks, Chris. Stay tuned, everyone, for some more Sporting Max. Thanks for listening to Sporting Max. If you liked this episode, please leave us a rating or review on iTunes and follow and subscribe to our channel on Instagram and YouTube. This episode was brought to you by The Missing Link.